Dr. Jessica Bennett, and this is the Mindful Literacy Podcast. In this podcast, you will hear inspiring interviews with teachers and experts in the field who will give you actionable tips and strategies that you can immediately implement in your teaching practice. In episode 10, I talk with Dr. Wendy Norman on the topic of ADHD and emotional regulation. Wendy is a Mindful Literacy Columbus board member. Dr. Wendy is a school psychologist who has a private practice in Columbus, Ohio. She is one of the best at delivering comprehensive educational evaluations and peeling back the layers of how a particular child's brain is working. Dr. Wendy does such an amazing job at explaining a particular diagnosis to parents and teachers, explaining what the data means, and explaining how to use the child's profile data to inform instruction. She does this with a high level of emotional intelligence and high vibrating communication. In this episode, Dr. Wendy outlines and explains a five-step process that parents and teachers can take to uplift the emotional regulation for kids with ADHD. She gives us several resources to further our own learning. I was so intrigued by our conversation, and I hope this sparks some movement for you as well. Hi, Wendy. Hey there, Jessica. How are you? Great. How are you? I'm doing great. Happy to be here. I'm so happy that you're joining us on the Mindful Literacy Podcast. You are one of the board members of Mindful Literacy Columbus, Mm -hmm. and your leadership in the field as a practitioner is out of this world. And so I feel very fortunate to have you guiding me in this journey in the nonprofit world to serve even more kids. Thank Well, thank you. Those are very kind words. I hope I live up to that in this podcast. I think you will. You and I, I I remember the first time I met you, I was sitting around an IEP team meeting. You had come in as an independent evaluator for your neuro, Dr. Wendy Nam, and you're a neuropsychologist. You diagnose children with learning disabilities and giftedness and all the other special things that every brain brings to the table. It's so unique. And we were dealing with a case to me, I was just so puzzled by this case. And it was really wasn't until you, you came in person to the meeting to walk us through your findings and it was so detailed and so comprehensive and you, you spoke so eloquently, but at the same time made it understandable to those of us who aren't neuropsychologists. And I was able to take that, understand how this child's brain worked and then devise my interventions based on your suggestions. And I just remember that moment being very powerful for me and watching you in your glory. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you for that. It's, it's nice to hear um, when people talk about the work that I do for a child, like where that goes after me, because I consider myself to be sort of the beginning of that. Well, probably not the beginning because by the time people come to me, there's been a lot of history for that child academically and in the school setting. But um, 
But it's nice to know that the work that I do with the child goes on to have a benefit for the child. So I always love talking to people that are, you know, what I consider to be in the trenches, in the schools, the private tutors, just everyone, um, and and understanding what it is that my information does for them. I do want to say something, though, because a lot of people refer to me as a neuropsychologist. And what's interesting about that is I'm actually trained as a school psychologist. So my training was school psych. And I've always been very brain-based in trying to understand um, what goes on for children. So initially, I had a very strong mental health focus. That's still there for me, definitely. Um, But I'm also very interested in um, the brain and then what goes on in the internal landscape of a child. So whether that's emotional or whether that is cognitive, um, and then how that impacts the learning process for them. And I consider those to be like underlying mechanisms. And those are the things that we don't observe. We observe the impact, but we don't observe. And so I had an opportunity to work in a, a neuropsych practice for five years. And so I took my training from school psych. And then my own professional development that I attended related to brain-based neuroscience, like those areas, and then the practice of neuropsychology, and I integrate those things. And then, of course, the mental health component. So um, so I just clarify that because I never want to misrepresent myself, um, but I definitely use a lot of the neuropsych perspective in the work that I do. Thank you for that. I think it's informed my work as intervention specialist so well. And that's on a professional level. And then on a personal level, as I've gotten to know you over the years and dared to ask you to join the board for Mindful Literacy Columbus, we got to know each other more on a personal level. And (laughs) I got to know you, this other side of you, which I bonded with immediately. And that is you're, you're a yogini as well. Right. And when I found out who your teacher was, it was like, I know. I I see you and I know you now. (laughs) Right. Right. I know that that world, it's, it's interesting how we cross over different aspects of ourselves. And, um, I think it's important that we integrate all of those aspects of ourselves as we work with children. I think that's really important because in addition to myself as a psychologist, a practitioner working in the schools, working in private practice, working in hospital settings, um, working in university, and having that mental health focus. But then also the yoga has been a huge part of my life and something that I have studied and and Eastern philosophy and their perspectives on all of these things that we do. And then I have this odd uh, side to myself that is a researcher. And so in addition to my graduate training in school psychology, I did graduate training in applied statistics, research methods, measurement, and program evaluation. And integrating those things has sort of been where I'm at today in my career. And it's like the best part, you know, it is the best part of my career because I get to take all of that uh, life experience and bring it together and work with children and families and other very compassionate people like you who are trying to frankly make the world, I mean, it's a cliche, but make the world a better place for kids. So... (laughs) I think it's funny too, with all of, all of that being said, you also are like, oh yeah. And by the way, I have um, lots of experience in the nonprofit sector. So helpful too. Oh, well, <laughs> right. Okay. So with, 
So you are, we are going to talk today about emotional regulation and something that's very, something that benefits greatly from a meditation and yoga practice, which is attention training and specifically with the ADHD brain. Right. What I do want to focus on is ADHD and emotion regulation. I, over the last number of years that I've been doing private practice, the children who struggle I'm not going to say the most, but their struggle is one that is the hardest to sort of find interventions for or to find a program or to help a team understand what is going on. Because in the classroom setting, it's really hard when you're a teacher and you have tons of kids and you have a child with emotion dysregulation who is then engaging in behaviors as a result of that. Um, And so it's not as easy to figure out, okay, what does that look like in terms of services or supports and that type of thing? And I have been working with a lot of um, younger children who come to me and I'm trying to figure out, is there a mental health issue here? Is there something in addition to the fact that there might be a learning disability, ADHD, that type of thing? And I started diving into, re-diving into revisiting the literature on ADHD. And I came across, uh, and I'm sure there are many people in the field that are looking at this, but I came across Thomas Brown and William Dodson and and a lot of work that is on the understood.org and the attitude.com websites and understanding how the emotional component of ADHD is very significant. And yet it's not part of the criteria that we use to diagnose children with ADHD. It's implied, we all know, all of us know that that's an issue and emotion regulation is a part of most executive functioning models, executive functioning being the way that the, the uh, sort of like the processes in the brain that help us organize, manage time, manage tasks, all of those things so that we get work done, we execute what it is that we have to offer. And so lots of execution expectations expected of children in the school setting And I came to understand that children with ADHD can have, not all, can have significant emotional issues that will look in the moment like they're depressed or they're bipolar or they are highly anxious. And yes, those emotional states have been elicited in that moment. But then once that moment fades, we find the child returns to the adorable, endearing child that they were before being emotionally triggered. And that is the essence of emotion regulation, difficulties related specifically to ADHD. And so some of these kids are labeled with diagnoses that at that time really aren't there for them. Now, maybe if their struggles continue over time, a depression diagnosis or anxiety diagnosis might be warranted, but initially not so much if we can help them. And so I really dove into the research and learned a lot of things. I have so many questions. One, is this part, are, are these things happening in the same part of the brain? Is this all happening in the frontal lobe with emotional regulation? Right. Emotional processing of information at a more basic level where it's, we're trying to out say not. So there, um, is an, there are these sort of cells, neuroception, these cells like very deep in the brain that are f- closer to the fight or flight part of our brain. Okay. And the neuroception is always going on where we are constantly scanning our environment behind the scenes to determine are we safe or not. And then if those 
those areas are activated to tell the system that we're not safe, then we move to that stress response of fight or flight. And sometimes people will say freeze and, you know, other kinds of responses, but it is um, a very automatic thing that happens with the sympathetic nervous system. And at that point for ADHD kids, as it is for other kids, kids with a trauma background, kids with mental health issues, that type of thing, it's really hard for them to access thinking, reasoning, problem solving, the emotional states, the internal experience of those emotional states just sort of overwhelm the brain and that becomes the focus in those moments. And so one thing that adults who work with children, whether we're parenting or psychologists or teachers, that is not the time for you to try to get them to reason and problem solve with you. They cannot do it. And that's true for all of us. But children with ADHD, so the part that we're trying, that we want them to eventually access when they are calmer is the frontal lobe, where they're able to process the emotion and figure out how to regulate themselves. But in that moment, once they're triggered, it's almost like, you know, the a wall slams down between that part of their brain that is in the, the fight or flight mode and then the frontal lobe, where emotion regulation takes place. The first step is that we have to help children de-escalate. We have to, and the, the way that we do that is by helping them to feel safe. And this concept of safety comes up a lot. And so there's a lot of overlap between trauma-informed practice and dealing with children who struggle with emotion dysregulation. And so, you know, when we talk about the idea of safety, a lot of times that becomes very much like we think of um, huge traumatic events or we think of like physical, you know, base physical safety, really adverse conditions. But the reality is, is that in order to feel safe, we also have to understand that threats to our ego, the part of our brain that is always searching for whether or not we're safe, isn't differentiating between a threat to my ego or to my sense of self or to my sense of right and wrong versus, or to my, uh, my sense of competence versus a life, physically life-threatening stressor or threat. And the issue of safety, safety in the classroom, children being feeling safe and trusting the adults and the people in their environments is huge to prevent going into that um, fight or flight response. Makes sense. I'm thinking too about kids. We talk a lot about emotional regulation and when you have a learning disability, that can be, let's say, in reading. So if you're feeling threatened because you're not learning, that may trigger a feeling of not being safe, or maybe you have ADHD and you missed the instruction, and then it's almost like it, you just start getting amped up. Exactly. And a lot of times their behavior is interpreted as bad behavior. You know, it's challenging behaviors or it's bad behavior. And as adults working with children, we have to distinguish between a stress response or a stress-induced behavior from what we consider to be challenging or problematic behaviors. And I think today, children are just under a lot of stress, chronically. The expectations, the fast pace, and then it goes without saying with everything we're dealing with right now with the pandemic, what that, what that is doing as well. So we have to really broaden our understanding 
what is stress, what is a threat, and how much of this is related to they're processing things, they get triggered, and they aren't able to go to that place of quote unquote self control, which is externally enforced. You know, it's called self control, but really what we mean by that is we want you to control your behavior when you're sitting in a classroom. We want you to control your behavior while you're trying to get your homework done. So it's externally imposed on the child. And that's not to say that we don't, the goal is self-regulation, but self-regulation and self-control are very different from one another. And self-regulation really focuses on how the child deserves to have reduction of stressors in their environment. And they can play a role in reducing those stressors. It's not just something that they look to the adults to do. But it also includes teaching kids how to engage in strategies to help reduce the threats or the stressors, but also what are things that they can do in the future to teach them strategies where they don't even get threatened by some of those things, like those threats sort of become, they lose their power, so to speak. But that is more child-driven and child-focused. I'm taking vigorous notes. <laughs> <laughs> I see you over there doing that. So since you're still doing that, I'm going to say something else about that. Learning more about the emotional aspects of ADHD and learning about the fact that, you know, emotional hyper arousal is a component of ADHD. For some children, it may be the main component. For other children, it may be something that pops up when the overwhelm gets to a certain level and that just happens a lot less frequently. Wow. I'm going to say, I'm going to reiterate that. Okay. Emotional hyperarousal is a component of ADHD. Yes. It's one of the executive functions. So it's, it's component of lots of things that impact executive functioning. But I mean, it's, so I shouldn't say that. It's not one of the executive functions. It's one of the things that executive functions help us to deal with. And so if that emotion regulation aspect is not as sophisticated, then you are going to experience emotional hyperarousal. And so children with ADHD definitely are going to fall into that camp. Wow. I mean, I'm thinking, you know, I'm a mom. I've got a three, five and almost nine-year-old. And I'm thinking about my kindergartner. I'm watching her, her emotional regulation develop right before my eyes, you know? And it, so at what age do you consider something typical? And at what age do you consider a response to be hyper aroused? So hyper arousal, children typically go from zero to a hundred in their response. And sometimes it happens so fast that you don't even know what the trigger is. Like over time, if you're observant, you can likely figure that out. But as you're beginning the process, either as a parent or a teacher or any other adult that works with children, it takes a little time to get to know that child. So it's a very fast response. It's very intense, especially in relationship to the nature of the trigger. And it tends to last for a while. It's harder for them to bounce back. In the ADHD literature, you'll hear the phrase putting on the brakes. But, and that, it's, that's also true for emotion, emotional reactions and then the behavioral responses to those emotional reactions. So understood.org, for example, an, an article, a blog, a, a post where they talk about ADHD and emotion. And they say, you know, kids with ADHD are quick to get frustrated by minor annoyances. 
They worry too much or too long, even about small things. Now, a child with anxiety can do these things as well. They have trouble calming down once they're annoyed or angry. They feel wounded or take offense at even gentle criticism. And there's been this concept called rejection sensitivity dysphoria that is in the ADHD literature, which is focusing on that aspect, this this, uh, sensitivity to perceived criticism. And they feel an excessive urgency to get something that they want in that moment. And so you can see it's a spectrum because obviously all of us have these characteristics at some point in our lives. But if we see more of a pattern, if there's more intensity, more frequency, longer duration, all of those things that we look at when we're doing like a functional behavioral assessment, right? Then, and if it's creating day-to-day functional impairment. Yeah, this is so deep. And I'm thinking about the kids that I've served in the school setting who've had ADHD, where it just, it seems like if you're not aware of these four things and that, that hyperarousal is a component of ADHD, as the adult, I need to be sensitive to how I'm responding, how I'm intervening, how I'm giving criticism. And the way that we do that with kids who may not struggle with this is the exact opposite of what a kid who is having trouble with emotional regulation needs isn't intact and you don't know that it's caused by their ADHD. So my response to that is this, anybody that is feeling a sense of rejection, whether perceived or based on a real trigger or stressor is probably not going to do well if they are seen as having challenging behaviors that need to be redirected. So in my opinion, whenever a child is showing emotionality in the classroom, they always need to have a response that says, okay, this child is, has a stress-induced behavior that is going on right now. I have to figure out what are the stressors? What is happening? And so I think it's a great model to use with all children, not just kids with ADHD. It just means that when children with ADHD, their reactions are so strong and it may have a bigger impact on the entire classroom setting. We may have to do things like, how do we compassionately remove the child from the classroom setting to go through the process of helping them calm down? Another child might be able to take them over to the side and have a conversation and they bounce back quickly. Within 30 seconds, they're done. Okay. A child with ADHD may take more time for that, but that's also true for a child with a trauma history or a child with a a mental health concern. And so, or a child with a learning disability, because what if what has happened is related to the area of their learning disability, their reaction is related to that. So one individual that I came across is Stuart Shanker. And I think I'm saying his last name, right? I kept finding all these videos of him online so that I could hear his name pronounced, but no one introduced him in any of the videos. The videos all started with him talking. So obviously he wasn't introducing himself. So hopefully I'm pronouncing it correctly. He's Canadian and he has a website that is selfreg.ca. So it's S-E-L-F-R-E-G. I said dot, I meant No, that's right, .ca. So like that's his website, the extension. And it's the Self-Regulation or Self-Reg Institute. And he 
espouses what's called the psychophysiology model, psychophysiology model of self-regulation. And his framework focuses on five domains. And this is how we try to figure out what is triggering the child, identify and help the child identify what is triggering their reactions. And so the first domain is biological. So are sensory issues taking place? Does the child, is the child just happen to be tired because didn't get enough sleep the night before? Is this a child that sort of was born with a little bit like their arousal states? You know, some of us, we can have arousal states that kick in and we just kind of go with it. And others of us feel it just more intensely. And that's just kind of how we're wired. So is this child more inclined to have that sensitivity with arousal states? The next area is emotional. The next domain is emotional. And of course, that is how we're emotionally reacting to the things in our environment and our ability to regulate. The third area is cognitive. And so that cognitive regulation is what we most often think of when we think of executive functioning and how well can we attend and organize and plan and all of that. The fourth area is social, and the fifth area is pro-social. And the fifth area really is talking about sort of going, like really taking us to even higher places, understanding and acting in the world from places like from compassion and equanimity and wisdom. And so there's a little bit of that Eastern influence, I think, is in that fifth um, step. So... In order, so the first step, according to Stuart Schenker, is that we do have to reframe the behavior. And we reframe the behavior by looking at sources of stress. What is triggering a stress response in the child instead of seeing it as a bad or problem or uh, problematic or challenging behavior? And going through the five domains and identifying what might be going on for the child is the first thing that you do. And that reduces your stress. Because when you feel compassion, then the threat to your ego when a child is making life more difficult for you in a classroom setting goes away because it's no longer seen as a threat when you refrain, when you reframe that behavior. It's a mindset shift. It is a mindset shift. Absolutely. That's really powerful. And I think too, you know, I think about the feedback loop and when you come, when you come at it that way, it will probably reduce the incidence of that behavior and lessen, you know, sometimes I feel like teachers have like popcorn (laughs) popping off in the classroom. Or whack-a-mole. Yeah. <laughs> Same idea. And, and, and so that's part of the issue because our current, current, I mean, the state of our current educational system, teachers don't have the resources they need to do the work that they need to do and that they want to do. And so that's always keeping them in a, a stress place. You know, they're dealing with the, their own work-related stressors that come from other places other than the children. And they're having to regulate their own stress around not having enough time, not having enough resources, frankly, not getting paid enough money, the student to teacher ratios just being way too high, all of those things, not having enough support staff to intervene in these moments where, you know, children need to have other aspects of their development addressed along with academic needs. 
And so it, it's totally understandable. It's so I don't want to make it seem like, okay, teachers, this is what you do. Because I would struggle. I am not a teacher. I considered it, but I knew that I didn't have what it took to manage that many children at a time. I do way better with one-on-one or small group. And, and so I'm always amazed when teachers are able to engage any degree of classroom management, to be honest with you. I'm like beyond impressed. And now my mind's going to, okay, let's talk about the climate we're in right now. COVID-19, we're about to start. Some schools have already started their school year. And in our area of central Ohio, we're, most of us are going 100% distance learning. And so I have two thoughts for you. One is, to what degree are you concerned about kids' executive functioning being on a screen most of the day? And how, how will that impact kids who have ADHD? So for some people having, so even though we're not physically in the same space, we are up on each other with this screen. I mean, if we were as close in the physical space as we are right now, that would be very intense for most people and a lot of kids. So I think about our kids on the spectrum, the amount of eye contact you give when you're online and how that can stress them out. But also kids who have ADHD, kids with anxiety, all of that. I mean, I think that that is a piece that we have to think about. I, this past summer, switched from in-person testing to mostly teleassessment in order to engage the most diligent safety practices. And I still do some in-person because not everything can be done online, but I'm using plexiglass. So now I'm separated from the kids with plexiglass. So I do have concerns with the online piece. It is hard for children. They're required to attend so much more because we're so close together. There's more one-on-one. And then if you have like six or seven kids on a screen, you've got all those faces coming at you. So again, think about arousal states and um, triggering of emotions that way. But I also want to share this. For some of my kiddos, and in particular my ADHD kiddos, I have found the teleassessment to actually work better. Now, keep in mind, I'm talking about teleassessment. I'm not talking about working with a child five days a week on tasks that they may or may not like doing. I'm talking about a one-shot deal where they know there's an end to me, that they're not going to have to continue to sustain attention forever and ever with me. And being able to engage with them in their home setting where they clearly were feeling more comfortable, I said things to them like, I don't care if you come with bedhead, I don't care if you have pajamas on, have a blanket wrapped around you, or have your pancakes next to you. I try to make it as comfortable for them as possible. They are able to move. They can get up and walk around the room while they're talking to me. Now, they can do that in person as well but it's more comfortable when you're in your home setting. So I do see pros and cons to both of them, but I do want to share a story because you brought up the pandemic. And so today I was working with a kiddo with ADHD this morning, and she's really funny, great sense of humor, lots of play. You have to engage her with play. I do not cut off the play. I try to use the play to keep them motivated. And I try to use the play within how I test to actually help them access their knowledge better or their cognitive skills better. 
And at one point, I can't remember why she was getting really excited about something. And it wasn't like she was like super upset, but she was kind of going to that place where she was escalating a little bit and becoming a little dysregulated. So I switched from the play, but I'm still using humor. And I'm like, okay, we're all okay. And I'm being silly and exaggerating, you know, my facial expression. And then I said, the world is all okay. And she stopped suddenly and she looked at me and she says, the world is not okay. Haven't you heard about the pandemic? (laughs) (laughs) And I just busted out laughing. And so she wasn't in that moment worried about the pandemic, but boy, did she bring that thought up right away when I said the world is all okay. She's very, you know, aware of that. Yeah. I, it's interesting for me to hear you say you've seen both sides of the coin for the virtual relating. I'll say with my kids with, with really profound ADHD, when I was doing live teaching with them one-on-one or two-on-one, I also got immense amounts of attention that I hadn't seen all year. When that same kid was in a group of three or four, or maybe sometimes even more, it was just not worth anyone's time, really. They were like, at one point I had a girl going, well, you know how like when you're talking on a Zoom, you can like open up other windows and start doing other <laughs> things? <laughs> it's like, <laughs> right. Oh, yeah, yeah, I do. And you shouldn't be doing that because you're not thinking about what we're talking about. <laughs> Right. Just brutally honest. And then on the same token, I would see my own third grader at the time managing her learning online that most of her teaching was not live. And it was like, you know, I got busted with the teacher one time because I thought she was doing all this work for hours and hours and she hadn't turned anything in in a week. So I thought, oh, I just got a front row seat to my kid's frontal lobe. And he's telling me, check, 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 check. And it's like, no, 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 no. (laughs) So I thought, oh dear, with kids have ADHD and we already know they struggle with executive functioning and following through on tasks and getting distracted. How do we as teachers on the other side of the computer screen program for that? Right. I mean, I think that's really hard. And so what I'm going to talk about next, um, which was a great segue, um, is the ADHD motivational system. And this is, it ties back to um, emotion regulation. So a lot of times we think that kids with ADHD are inattentive, but really it's a poor modulation or regulation of attention. Sometimes they hyper-focus and we see it. They struggle to transition away from the screen. They struggle to transition away from the Legos, whatever it is, okay? And so, you know, what the research has shown is that Children with ADHD have a motivational system that is motivated by interest, passion, challenge or competition, novelty, and urgency. And so interest and passion make sense. If a task is interesting, they don't have to engage executive functioning in order to persist on the task because it inherently is rewarding to do. And the same with if, if it's within a passion of yours, if you have a, a certain passion that you feel very strongly about. We, one of the things that I do when I have to motivate kids is when the child has a temperament that I know this will work, okay? The competition challenge piece. If I have an easy task that I have to time, I will say, you know what? I'm getting ready to give you a task and it's gonna try to trick you. Your job is to not let it. So let me tell you what we're getting ready to do. And they are right there like they're on a game show and they will give me everything. So that is one of the things that I do. Or if I can take a task and break it up 
into smaller chunks like that, where I engage their sense of challenge or competition, then I can have a child who was like, I'm done. I don't want to do anymore. I want to leave this place, blah, blah, blah. And then I can engage that competition sense and they will be right there with me. Novelty, but once it's no longer novel, it becomes tedious. It's not every novelty is going to do it and novelty wears off, you know. And then the last one, urgency, we really don't want to engage because that's how we develop patterns of procrastination. How many of us say, well, I procrastinate, but that's because I like being under pressure in order to get something done. Well, that's because you've learned to use that as a strategy to motivate yourself, but it comes with a price because it's a stress response. And you're probably then not engaging all of your executive functions and your reasoning abilities and their fullest capacity when you're doing that. So children with ADHD do not naturally have the ability to use goal setting and prioritization. And that's what those of us who have these amazing frontal lobes, which I look at and feel so, oh, so jealous. And they can just say, okay, this task is important. I need to do it. This is how I'm going to break it down. This is how I'm going to meet my goals. And then they follow through. They initiate, they sustain, they complete the task. I think it's harder and harder for most of us to do that for all of the things that come at us in the world today. But some of us are clearly better able to do that than others. And people with ADHD is just one group of people that might struggle with that. So you have to have make it personal. You have to find the way that it becomes important to the child in order for them to kind of tap into their motivational system, what is meaningful to them. And that can be very challenging because sometimes we ask kids to do things that they just don't want to do and they don't see the benefit in it. And sometimes they're right. Yeah. I feel like there's such a opportunity here with the distance learning. I know a lot of schools and teachers are going to project-based learning, which opens a huge door for individualizing instruction and allowing kids to choose things that are interesting, that things that they're passionate about, things that challenge them, right? So these are good tools for us to think about as we're designing instruction going forward. Project-based learning is an excellent idea. Like that's a great suggestion. I think we also have to start by, you know, when we are getting to know our students in the beginning and we do all this testing to see where they're, you know, where they are on benchmark tests and whatnot, we also need to learn what is important to them. What do, what are their interests? What's important to them? What do they not like? What is really hard for them? What frustrates them? And that information can be incredibly important by integrating that into instruction. And you're right, with the type of learning we're doing now, online learning, depending on, again, the student-teacher ratio, we can actually use that information and act on, we we can actually create lesson plans or learning experiences for kids um, that will motivate an ADHD brain. Yeah, totally. I'm smiling so big because I'm thinking about a student they started working with this summer who loves Lego. So now I'm working with them on literacy skills, but started studying the word Lego. And then we discovered that it's a Danish word. And then I was like, well, let me tell you about some Vikings and how that is. There you go. So I would think it was just like the fastest 45 minutes of his life, but he was glued like, what? (laughs) You know? Right. But it was fun. Exactly. Right. Okay. So what else do you have for us? 
you know, we've talked about the motivational system and we've talked about the um, emotional hyperarousal, the stress response, and when children are in chronic stress, chronic stress can become a traumatic response or a trauma response. So there's stress, but there's a certain point where stress is going to be, it's going to take on characteristics, you know, like trauma, a trauma experience. And trauma-informed practice can also cross over into this area. Um, absolutely, and be very helpful in working with kids. I do want to talk about, we sort of started the first step of um, Stuart Schenker's model of self-regulation in terms of, and I'm pulling up my cheat sheet here. So he has a number of steps and uh, you can take a program like professional development. He actually is very much focused on the educational setting. So he works very closely with teachers and schools and trying to implement the Schenker method, which are these steps that I'm going to talk about, and helping teachers to understand how to integrate that into the classroom setting and then how the school can integrate it at the building level and the district level, but then also for parents. So there are programs that you can learn you can do to be certified in these approaches. And it's online learning. So that's nice. Of course it's online. It have to be now, but um, I think in general, it was always set up as an online kind of approach. So the reframe the behavior was the first thing that we talked about. And, and again, it's shifting your thinking from misbehavior to stress behavior and how to identify the stressors, which is recognizing the stressors across the five domains. And that's the second step. So the first is reframe the behavior. The first R. The second R is recognize the stressors across the five domains and eventually teach children to do that. So gradual release of responsibility. We, we shift from adult sort of led to child led. And then there are lots of material that you can get for free on the website, his website, the selfreg.ca, where they talk about strategies to reduce stressors in those five domains. Like what are some things that you can do in those five domains to help reduce stressors? and reduce a stress response. And those are things that children can become creative as they understand this model more and more and are able to do more of their own self-regulation independently that they can also customize strategies for themselves. So it's not unlike your general coping model. Like when we think about teaching kids coping skills, the problem is, is that we tend to start with, let me teach you some coping skills so you can control your behavior. Instead of let me reframe the behavior when I'm working with this child and better understand so that then I can approach the first step as being how do I help them? How do I recognize the stressors, help them recognize the stressors, legitimize that experience for them instead of making them feel vulnerable and weak, and then moving into strategies to reduce those stressors because we all deserve to have stressors reduced in our lives. You know, we don't have to make the world harder than it has to be. That doesn't give us some kind of like extra certificate in the toughness of life. And so then the next step is to reflect on how do I become even more aware of stress in my life so that I can develop proactive strategies. And so there's a reflection. There's a, a higher level thinking about this, both again for the adult helping the child, but also the child where they reflect so that their stress awareness is enhanced. And then the last step is 
with all of, of those steps previously, I can now develop very personalized strategies. So I respond to stress in the future by developing very personalized strategies that promote resilience and restoration. And the word restoration is really important because with this particular model of self-regulation, it's based on, it actually comes out of, I think it was mechanical engineering where they talk about, again, I'm going back from my, because I just dove into this this past summer. I'm like all about it. And I am still um, very much on a learning curve with everything. But they talk about the relationship between stress, energy, and tension. And it's right out of mechanical engineering. So the psychophysiology model of self-regulation focuses on how we respond to stress. Like in a nutshell, that's it. How do we respond to stress? How do we engage in, you'll love this, mindful self-regulation to enhance learning, social, emotional, and physical well-being. Well, yeah, I'm over here like eating up our word (laughs) because, you know, we talk about, and you know this because you were with me from the beginning when I named mindful literacy, but we're not only being mindful of how we're teaching literacy, we're also teaching mindfulness. Exactly. You know, so this is mindfulness in the adult, mindfulness in the child. This, and, you know, you're saying that stress, energy, right, intention, and restoration is mechanical engineering. Well, sister, you know that's also in yoga philosophy. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Equal parts work, equal parts rest. Exactly. And he talks about how a stressor. So when he talks about the relation, he has this one minute video. And he says, a stressor is anything that requires us to expend energy in order for a system to keep operating within its functional range. So like homeostasis. So of course, it makes sense. Mechanical engineering, they're trying to figure out the stress and tension in the building structures so that it's created in a way that the building is is safe. Now we're back to the issue of safety, that we can trust that that structure is going to be protective and not fall apart because it also needs to have a balance with stress, energy, and tension. Like there needs to be a balance there. And so when there's too much stress, there are brain structures that we've talked about that go into the fight or flight mode. And when it does, it automatically puts our muscles in a semi-contracted state to be ready to run or fight. And so with that contraction, that semi-contracted state, that's tension, it's muscle tension, and that burns a lot of energy. So when we have kids that never get out of the stress response long enough to experience restoration, their like alarm system is always ready to be ignited. And so they come to the classroom setting looking for something that is unsafe, something that is a threat because they never get to experience the homeostasis. They never experience like fully the parasympathetic nervous system system cut, you know, coming in and calming the system so that restoration can happen. And these children really need, so some kids need movement breaks throughout the day. Some kids need restorative breaks throughout the day. And some kids need both. You could say human. Exactly. Absolutely. Because what we're, ta- we're talking about that, it really it's mammalian in a lot of ways. 
it's even beyond humanity. You know, this mindfulness has become very mainstream word to use. And you know better than most people that it is rooted in ancient Eastern philosophy. And it, yeah, it goes deeper than how we use it in our mainstream pop culture right now. But I feel like this rest restoration piece is where, you know, we're teaching kids meditation tools. And like you said, bringing down that parasympathetic nervous system can really come into handy and for, and for teachers. Absolutely. It's, I mean, it's vitally important because, you know, Stuart Schenker differentiates between a stressed child who's in survival brain versus a calm child who's in learning brain. Mm -hmm. And so if we are doing things that we're already bringing children in that are, have this like kindled alarm system where it's just ready to act on a stressor. And then we stress them even more with our demands. And, and then we wonder why they're not performing the way that they should be. Wow. I'm just going to take a minute and pause. And it's really because first of all, I love a good framework. (laughs) Me too. I love it. I need to put my information somewhere. I love, I'm excited that you're excited about this and I can't wait to dive deeper into this just because of the clientele I serve, but also because of the people that we will be serving with Mindful Literacy Columbus. Now, when I first started this idea of, right. of raising money to provide tutoring to kids who wouldn't otherwise be able to afford a one-on-one or two-on-one tutor, it was with kids these this exact profile in mind. It was kids, I was you know working on my dissertation in a city school with kids who had gone through immense trauma. Like I can't even talk about it because it's, I'll start crying, but just horror stories that you'd see on the news, but there was actually a small child who had lived through that scene stuff that they shouldn't have seen and probably are forever changed by it. And here we are, you know, the 70 year old kid coming into school the next day and we're like, okay, time to learn how to read. When it's like, wait a minute, you just witnessed a murder. And I do want to say the flip side of that is we do know that when children have really positive school experiences and they feel cared for, understood, and successful, that becomes a huge protective factor for children who do have trauma history, who do have a lot of other risk factors in their lives that they're having to navigate. And so, you know, again, it's that sort of like, resources, energy, all of that. So the more protective factors that we offer a child, the better they are able to regulate themselves in the face of these other awful experiences. And not, and I'm not trying to say, oh, this is the only remedy to that because obviously we need social change so that children don't experience these traumas to begin with. But as educators, you know, we can be a protective factor for a child that will make a huge difference in the life of a child, or we can become another risk factor for them. And it sounds like, you know, the more positive factors and the more people who understand how to go from a hundred back down to 50. Mm -hmm. Right. (laughs) Right. And the more safe people a child has, and the more opportunity a child has to decompress and talk about what's going on and to talk about what they like to have going on, like their passion and interests and all of that. So I think the social emotional component to teaching literacy for me has always been there. And I think they go hand in hand, but I think it's nice to have something like a framework to go to and say, okay, where are we in this, in this five-step process? And where do I need to shift my mindset so I can access right. 
the learning brain. And what's interesting is that when you do professional development through the Self-Reg Institute um, using this framework, you are expected to go through that process personally. You know, it's just like in every other, again, it's a very Eastern philosophy, but where you are supposed to do the work that you're expecting the, your students in whatever capacity that you have students to do that work, you have to be able to experience that directly. So it's not just something, again, that we impose on children to control their behaviors. Right. It's a teaching moment. Exactly. That's bi-directional. Yes, I was just going to say it's a teaching <laughs> moment for everybody, adults and children. So I love this is for teachers and parents. Exactly. Right. Okay. So self-reg. Yes. Dot CA as I'm assuming it's in Canada. Right. Right. Yes. Awesome. I'll put it in the show notes. Do you have any closing thoughts for us today? I don't, you know, it's always hard for me when people ask me that question at the end, because I feel like we've touched on so much, not in the order that I had it listed. So I find that fascinating also how thought processes go, go around in, in places like that. But, you know, I think my closing thought that I just want to share Oftentimes when I work with kids in terms of assessments, that I, the assessments that I do, I get feedback from the adults in their lives, lots of different adults in their lives that really focus on, they don't focus enough, they don't try hard enough, they don't put forth effort, they don't care, they only do the work if they're interested in it, all of these things. And I'm not saying that I get that for every kid or, or that those individuals are overly punitive or negative, but I do think that we have to really be careful about the attributions that we make about students' behaviors because we don't understand the neurology between their ears. We don't understand the lives that they live outside of how we know them, either as parents or teachers or whatever role. We don't understand how throughout their, from day one, they've interpreted the experiences that they've had. and. The social psychology research is very clear that in most situations, when we judge people's behaviors, the most likely cause or trigger for that behavior is situational. It's not based on one's traits or constitution. So you're saying separate the person from the behavior. Exactly. Exactly. But also put that behavior in context and understand that by the time you're seeing the behavior, there's emotion, there's biology, there's experience, there's social, there, all of these things have taken place. And so you're seeing the end product of a very complex, and again, if you're being very behavioral about it, chain of behaviors or events, or it's an amalgamation of that child's experience, experiences and how they make sense of that, that shines through how they interpret everything. That's true for all of us. So we need to give ourselves grace around that. And we definitely need to give the children we work with grace around that as well. Beautiful final thoughts. Thank you so much, Dr. Nauman. Absolutely. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. If you enjoyed this podcast, please find us on Facebook at Mindful Literacy Practice. Our Facebook page for our nonprofit is at Mindful Literacy Columbus. If you are a parent, I invite you to join our free and private group on Facebook, Mindful Literacy Parent Society. If you are a teacher, I invite you to join our free and private group on Facebook, Mindful Literacy Teacher Tribe. You can also find us on Instagram at Mindful Literacy Practice. Our website is mindfulliteracypractice.org. 
make sure to check out our nonprofit tab where we give you all the information you need to find a scholarship, become a tutor, make a donation, or volunteer. Thank you so much for listening with the deepest gratitude.